the batteries. <laughs> Amen. Thanks, Donna. Thank you. I love you too. Uh, ooh, these lights are bright. I can kind of see some of you. The, uh, a, a couple weeks ago, we met uh, on Valentine's night, and I told you that I was going to preach half a sermon because I was only going to look at half a passage. So tonight, we'll look at the other half of the passage, and I'll do the other half of the sermon. Um, last time, we started in Matthew 19, and we started in uh, verse 16, and we went through verse 26. So if you want to start opening your Bibles to Matthew 19, we'll, start, we'll pick up in verse 27 tonight. A couple of weeks ago, I told you that I believe that really Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16, all the way through Matthew 20, verse 16, is one big section, right? One big section with one big point. And the point is, is something that Jesus says twice in that section, that many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first, and that is what we call a paradox. A paradox, I'll read actually the di a dictionary definition of paradox. A paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. And it seems, this is... The example, what is a paradox? It's something that seems absurd that being first makes you last or being last makes you first. It seems mutually contradictory. So in what sense can I become first by being last? In what sense could Jesus mean this statement in a way that makes sense? So we'll try to figure out, but let me go ahead and kind of show my hands. I think that this phrase makes sense if we add these lines to, we add the lines in our own eyes and in God's eyes. Many who are first in their own eyes are last in God's eyes. But many who are last in God's eyes, or in their own eyes, are first in God's eyes. The person, uh, well, well let, me, let me give you another way to think about this is that the reward of being part of um, Jesus' kingdom is lost or it's diminished when we think we deserve the reward. But the reward of being part of Jesus' kingdom is heightened and more enjoyable when we realize how undeserving we are. So let's, let's put those together. Um, when we are first in our own eyes, we think we deserve the kingdom. We become last and diminish the reward or the joy of the kingdom that's offered to us. But when we are last in our own eyes, and we think we don't deserve the kingdom at all, that's when the kingdom becomes the most precious and the most valuable and the most enjoyable to us. And I think that that's what we'll see as we go through the passage and see that many who are first will be last, but the last shall be first. Now, I want to tell you one other thing, since we're doing part two, really, of this passage, is last time we looked at the rich young ruler. And what I try to say is that this was a guy who completely missed the kingdom because he was first in his own eyes. 
Right? He came to Jesus and he tried to prove that he had kept the law. He was good. And in his eyes, he didn't need mercy because he had kept all the law since his youth. And because he was first in his own eyes, he missed the kingdom completely. What we're going to find out today is that this isn't just a problem that non-Christians have. Right? It's not just non-Christians who run the risk of being first in their own eyes. That Christians also, we can be first in our own eyes. And this can compete with or diminish or even destroy our ability to experience the reward of the gospel. Right? This isn't just a... This isn't just a message for people who are out there. This is a message for people who are in here that we are at risk of thinking far too highly of ourselves. And if we do so, we're risking the joys and the excitements of the kingdom. But if we understand ourselves for who we are, we become first in the eyes of God and we get the full glory and the full benefit of being a part of his kingdom. So that's what I think the main idea tonight is. Be last in your own eyes so that you can be first in the eyes of God. With that said, let's, uh, let's open our Bibles and read Matthew 19. Starting in verse uh, 27. Then Peter responded to him, Him is Jesus. Peter responded to Jesus, Look, we've left everything and followed you. So what will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I assure you, in the Messianic age, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters, father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the workers on one denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went went out about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. To those men he said, you also go to my vineyard and I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. About noon and at three, he went out again and did the same thing. Then about five, he went out and found others standing around and said to them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they said to him. You also go to my vineyard, he told them. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, call the workers and give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. When those who were hired, about five came, they each received one denarius. So when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more, but they also received a denarius each. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner, these last men put in one hour and you made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day in the burning heat. He replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my business? Are you jealous 
because I'm generous? Jesus says, so the last will be first and the first last. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that you will open our hearts to understand this hard passage. It's a paradox, which is difficult for us to wrap our minds around, and the story is hard as well because um, we have prized fairness, um, and sometimes, but sometimes are ill-equipped to judge what is truly fair. So I pray that you'll open our minds to see what true fairness is, that you will bring to our minds that we are not deserving of your kingdom, that we are the last. And the very fact that we could receive any reward whatsoever is an amazing, amazing testimony to your grace. I pray that as I speak that you will give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, and as All of us listen to your word tonight that you will open our hearts to receive your spirit, to convict us of sin, and to allow us to leave here more deeply in love with you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So the passage starts out with Peter asking a question. Peter says, look, we've left everything and we followed you. So what will there be for us? And so the first thing I want to point out is that this is not a comment out of left field, right? This comment makes a lot of sense if you remember the first part of the message we looked at. Because remember what Jesus had said to the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler had come to Jesus and said, what must I do? What good thing must I do to get the kingdom, to get eternal life, to get into the kingdom? And Jesus immediately says, you're asking the wrong question, He says, what good thing? He says, only one is good. Only God is good. Your idea that you can meet this standard of goodness is completely wrongheaded. He says, if you want to be good, you'll have to keep all the commandments. And the guy brazenly says, well, I've kept them all. From my youth, I've kept every commandment. And you get the idea that he expected Jesus to say, whoa, really? Really? You're so impressive. You're definitely in, right? You're definitely in the kingdom. If, if you've kept them all, you are awesome. Good to, hey, welcome in. And, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus is less impressed with the rich young ruler than he is with himself. And so Jesus says, okay, well, if you, you want to be really perfect, then go and sell everything you have and follow me. And that's when this rich young ruler walks away walks away from the kingdom and walks away from the reward because he cannot perfectly love God. He's too attached to this world and to his life, and so he walks away unable to meet this standard of goodness that he's trying to reach, and he's saddened. I think uh, it's important just to remember here, Jesus' point wasn't, if you just try a little harder, you could get in. It's not even if you try way, way harder, then you could get in. Jesus' point is if you're going to try to earn heaven by your good deeds, you just need to know that's impossible. Right? And how do we know that that's what he means? It's because the disciples listen to what Jesus says. He says, look, for this guy to get into heaven, that's, that's harder than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. 
And the disciples say, well, then who can get into heaven? And Jesus says, it's impossible. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With God, it's possible that you and I, though we have no merit of our own, that we could still get into heaven. Because with God, all things are possible. Eddie, it's even possible for you to get into heaven. Because with God, all things are possible. I'm glad that I know that you won't be mad if I pick on you. But that's Jesus' point. And it seems that the disciples are getting this. They recognize the gospel is impossible. But then Peter goes and he asks this question that is basically saying, well, this guy, this rich young ruler, he wouldn't leave everything and follow you. But I have, Jesus. So do I get anything for it? Is there a reward for me doing what this rich young ruler couldn't do or wouldn't do? And so what I'm trying to do is figure out what's driving this question. Why does Peter ask this question to begin with? And I I think there's two possibilities. The first one is I don't actually think this is true, but one possibility is that Peter has misunderstood this whole interaction with the rich young ruler. He's thinking that if the rich young ruler had tried harder, maybe he could have got in. And he wants Jesus to say, yeah, Peter, you've done enough. You're in. Right, he's saying, have I sacrificed enough to get into the kingdom? But I, that's one possible, a possibility, but I don't think that makes sense of the context. Because really in Matthew 25, the disciples already recognized if we're trying to get to heaven based on our works, that's impossible. Right, so it seems that Peter would have to be going backwards in his thinking to ask this question if that's his goal. And also Jesus' story doesn't seem to be addressing how we can uh, be good enough to get into the kingdom. I think there's a second possibility, a second motivation that I think more likely talks about what is going on in Peter's heart. I think Peter understands that salvation is a miracle, and I think he doesn't like it. He has some misgivings about it. If salvation is really a free gift, then why in the world am I sacrificing so much? If it's free, why have I given up everything for it? I kind of think of this. I, last week I got an iPhone, right? If I, fa- I had to buy it, actually. They didn't give it to me. But if I found out that they were giving away free iPads, man, I'd be upset. You mean I gave my hard-earned money for something I could have gotten for free? I think that's kind of what's going on in Peter's mind. You mean that I walked away from my job and my family and all that I loved in order to follow you and this whole thing was free? I didn't need to do any of it. Was it worth it? Is all of this sacrifice worth it if it's a free gift? I think that's what's going on in Peter's heart here. I think he's wondering if, if it's really not, if heaven isn't something I earn, why give up so much for it? Is there any reward for what I've given up? Before we look at Jesus' answer, I think it would be helpful for us to pause and ask, do we have this same question? A little bit, maybe we wouldn't admit it, but a little bit, do I have this question 
If you work in the nursery or with children's ministry, no matter how much time you pour into that ministry, it will not do, it will not get you into heaven. It will not earn you any more favor in the kingdom of heaven, even if you give all of your time. If you quit your job and you run the nursery or you run children's ministries, we would be so thankful and you would not get into heaven because of it. So would it be worth it? A lot of you are giving substantial portions of your income to this church. Some 10%, some more than 10%. You're giving a lot of money to this church. And God says salvation is absolutely free. None of the money that you have given to this church or to God's ministry has earned you or bought you any share in the kingdom of heaven. So is it worth it? Why would you give so much if it's not getting you this reward of heaven? Is it worth it? And I think these are the kind of questions that, in honesty, we might be wrestling with. And I think it's what Peter's wrestling with. And so Jesus is going to answer that for us. And what he's going to tell us is, A, is worth it. It's definitely worth it. But be really careful here. Because the fact that we're asking these kind of questions could be a clue that our hearts are in a bad place. It could, be in a, it could be a clue that our hearts are in a place that will rob us from all of the joys of the reward that we are offered for our service. Let me explain. Let's look at, at Jesus' response to Peter's question. Jesus says, I assure you, in the messianic age, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name, you'll receive a hundred times more. And you'll inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The first part of this is Jesus is saying, it's worth it. Whatever you have sacrificed, it's worth it. A hundred times worth it. If you have walked away from friends for the sake of the gospel, it is worth it. Family members, it is worth it. If you have parted with large amounts of money so that you could help fund the spread of the gospel through in Baker County or all across the world, that is a huge sacrifice, and it is worth it, a hundred times worth it. And he's talking about, especially in the Messianic age, when, when we see God face to face, we see the God who created us or the Savior who died on the cross for us, we will never under any circumstances say, I wish I didn't give so much. Right? He's saying when you see God, when you see Christ face to face, you will think, Everything that I've ever given, even if you give your own life for the gospel, you'll say that was a good investment. A hundred times a good investment. I, uh, just on a side note, one of the books that was kind of a life changing, we talked about casual Christianity last week with Rodney, and one of the books that 
shook me to the core about my casual Christianity was actually a biography called Through Gates of Splendor, the story of Jim Elliott, who um, in college realized, I don't want to be casual. And so he goes as a missionary to the Aka Indians in Ecuador, and um, really in the beginning of his missionary endeavors there is brutally murdered by a, a savage Indian tribe. And uh, his wife, who's written this biography, kind of asks the question, was it worth it? And she says, a hundred times worth it. He gave his life and service to the king, and she couldn't be more proud. And she believed that him, standing before his God, will say, I would give it all over again in service to you. So Jesus' first response, is it worth it? Yeah, it's worth it. Big time, it's worth it. But he also cautions you, don't miss this, that the fact that you're asking the question could suggest that your heart's in a dangerous place. Because many who are first will be last, and the last first. See, the, th the idea that you think you've sacrificed so much for God suggests that in your own mind, you're one of the firsts. But God's telling us, Jesus is telling us, it's the people who think, I haven't sacrificed anywhere what he deserves, who actually are the firsts. It's not the people who think they've given the most. It's the people who think they have the least to give. And he explains that in this story. Let's just read the story again together. It's a hard story, especially for any of us who are capitalists. We love our rewards. And he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the workers for one denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And when he went out about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. To those men, he said, You also go to my vineyard, and I'll give you what is right. So they went off. Um, about noon and about three, he went again. He did the same thing. Then about five, he went and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because you, uh, no one hired us, they said to him. <clears throat> you also go to my vineyard, he told them. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, call the workers, give them the pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. Let's pause here. Jesus' story is comparing the kingdom of heaven, to just some real-world stuff that we should be able to understand here. And sometimes when you're talking about these stories, Jesus is talking about something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's hard for us to, to understand, but uh, this still goes on today, right? If, if somebody wants to find day laborers, I, I read an article not long ago that if you go to uh, a, lot of, a lot of times Home Depot will have a stack of guys that are standing there early in the morning ready to be picked up to go work in the middle of the day or to work all day. Um, in this story, Jesus is saying that he is like the one, God is like the one that's out looking for these laborers, right? He's the owner of the house. And these day laborers, he's comparing those to the disciples and really to all of us who are part of the kingdom of God. So the, 
I want to make sure I haven't skipped anything. Sometimes I get going so fast I lose my place in my notes here. Let me make a couple observations real quick. So the first thing I, I said is that the, the landowner is being compared to God here. God is the one that's gone out and looked for uh, laborers. And, and one of the main things we see about him in this story is that he's a generous guy. Right? He's gone out and hired a lot of people, and he's given them all rewards. Some of them rewards far beyond what they could imagine. But I don't think that the central character isn't actually God in this story. The, compar- the comparison that's being made is between the different kinds of laborers. There's laborers who are hired early in the day, and there's hi- laborers who are hired late in the day. The laborers that are hired early in the day, they're the first. They're the ones that have done the most work. The laborers that are hired late in the day are the last. They're the ones that have done the least amount of work. One of the little blogs I read about finding day laborers kind of talked about the strategy for hiring laborers. If, if you go to Walmart, they say show up, I mean, not Walmart, if you go to Home Depot to get a day laborer, they said show up early because you get your pick of the litter. Right? So if you go to get a first, if you're the first one there, you look around this group of guys and you're saying, who has a strong back here? Who's going to be able to carry the most uh, cement or the most whatever I have to move? Who's going to be able to do the most work? They said if you show up late, you're getting the guys who've been picked through. The guys that they can't carry anything. They're, not gonna, they're either too old or too out of shape or they're, they're not going to be any help. And I think this same idea is going on here. The guys who are hired first seem to be the cream of the crop guys. It's the guys that are hired at the end. They're not doing any work, and it's probably because they didn't have much work to offer. Right? If we're comparing this to a, uh, a schoolroom setting, for instance, right? The, the first would be the people who are your all-A students. They show up. They sit in the front of class. They do all their homework, and they get all their work done. They're the firsts in this scenario. The last are the people who have really, on the best day, they'll get a 50 on your test. You're just hoping they'll get their name on the name line. That's the kind of people they're last. They're the, they're the ones that were picked at the end of the game because they didn't have much to offer. And Jesus is saying, really, this is the way the scenario is. He, he's got some first and he's got some last. But what happens that really makes this story interesting is that at the end of the story, the first and the last are all gathered together. The people who had a, seemed to have a lot to offer and the people who seem to have nothing to offer. And Jesus goes out and he pays them and he gives them all the same amount of money. He gives them all the, the reward of one day's labor. And that's where the story takes a very interesting turn. Because what happens is you have two different responses. The first people to get paid are the lasts. They showed up for an hour of work. And they got a whole day's wage. And you just imagine how they felt. A few, I don't know, maybe it was a year ago, there was a Facebook thing that floating around about a guy who went into, I think it was a IHOP, and left his waitress a $200 tip. And she gets this tip, 
and she starts crying, and she runs out to the parking lot. She's a $200 tip, and she starts talking about how much she needed it, and her, she's a single mom, and she's putting her kids in school and daycare, and she is just weeping over this $200 tip because it was so much more than she ever expected. It was wildly generous, and I'm kind of feeling like that's the sense that you get when you're a last and you get a whole day's wage, which is the exact opposite response of the first. The first looked out and said, if he is getting a day's wage, certainly I'm worth way more than that. Certainly I'm more valuable than that person. Why am I not getting more reward? And what happens is he begins to grumble. He begins to be upset. The guy who hired him and paid him what he promised becomes an enemy in his mind. And so the foreman tells him. He becomes a little indignant himself. And he says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what is yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you, and don't I have the right to do what I want with my own business? Are you jealous because I'm generous? And I think the point of this story here laid out before us is that the people who were last received this reward with utter thanksgiving, thinking, how in the world did I ever get this reward? But the people who were first in their own minds, when they get the same reward, think it's pittance for them because of how much they deserved. And though it's the same denarius, one group is thrilled and the other group is bitterly disappointed. And Jesus, I think, is using this story to illustrate that your joy in the reward of the gospel is somehow contingent on your view of whether or not you deserve the gospel. Your ability to be excited for your reward is dependent on whether or not you think I'm a first or I'm a last. If you think you deserve the reward, you will think his grace is no big deal. But if you're the type of person who says, I cannot believe that he would give me any reward, then his reward is lavish and unreal. Jesus tells us this story to teach us what it means to be first and to be last. We are first in our own eyes. We think we deserve the gospel and all its rewards. If we're last in our own eyes, we think there's no way that God could save a wretch like me. I want to, as I try to wrap this up, ask two major questions. I want to assume that none of us in this room want to be first in our mind. I want to assume that we want to be the last. We want to be the last in our own minds so that we are first in God's. Right? We want to be last so that we get the full joy of the rewards of the kingdom of heaven. My question is, what is keeping us from that? What is it in us that keeps us from being the last in our own eyes? And I think that 
There's probably many answers to this, but I think one of the chief answers is that we have overestimated our own goodness, and we've underestimated God's. I think the thing that keeps us first in our own minds is that we believe in our hearts that ultimately we're pretty good, and God is just a little bit better. I had a counseling appointment this week that helped illustrate this in my own mind. There was a a man who came to my office, and he confessed to me that he is having an affair. And um, that wasn't the shocking part. The shocking part to me was that after he made this confession, he spent the next 15 minutes explaining to me why, in the scheme of things, it wasn't that big of a deal. He said, if you understood what a lot of his friends are doing, then I'll realize that it's not huge, right? He's not partying every night, and he's not a drunk, and he's paying his bills. He says, in the scheme of things, it's a rather small mistake. And he goes on to tell me that he's active in his church. He wants to be a pastor. He wants to work with kids. And and he views himself as being right with God, but he's made this small mistake of cheating on his wife. And so I spent the rest of our appointment trying to convince him that he is nowhere near as good as he believes. And I said that this is not a small sin. You haven't just cheated on your wife. You have offended a holy God. And as that appointment ended, I I honestly don't know how much of a difference I made. Maybe we'll, we'll find out if I get to talk to him more, and, and we'll see. But I left there not knowing if he really grasped the idea that his sin was a big deal. And so I wrestled this week thinking through, what is it that would cause a person to be able to go to church, think of themselves as a great Christian, someone who wants to be in ministry, to be able to live a life in sin and think it's just a minor thing? It's no big deal. What is it that leads to that? And then I came across this video. And this video was a video of a pastor's conference where a pastor, uh, I, I think it's a pastor's conference anyway, but a pastor submits a question and it goes to R.C. Sproul and he basically asks, is God, um, everybody says God's so forgiving, but if God was really that forgiving, why did he cast us out of the garden for just a little mistake, for just a little sin? I actually, I actually want to show you the video. Sean, if you want to just push the slide, or Terry, just let us, we're gonna wa- I want you all to watch the video with me.
We'll just watch it one. <laughs> I'll be honest, that, that kind of knocked my socks off when I watched it. Because what I had to realize is that this guy's that I had just counseled, um, I think the reason, or at least part of the reason he struggles with thinking that his sin was no big deal is because he sits under pastors like me who think that, generally speaking, sin is no big deal. People who have forgotten who God is and who we are. I think that when you wrap your head around the fact that a holy perfectly righteous God made me out of dirt and I defied him, rebelled against him and I've done so over and over and over again. The fact that he hasn't utterly wiped me off the face of this earth is astounding. I'm I'm worried in some degree that this boy who has cheated on his wife thinks that his sin is no big deal because he's lived in a church that has gone around thinking that our sins are no big deal. And that we think this way because we've lost sight of who God is. We've overestimated our own value, our own goodness. We thought somehow the fact that I've done a few good things in my life should impress the God who made me out of dirt. And that he would somehow turn a blind eye to the fact that I have uh, rebelled against him. A slave, a, a servant of the prince of the power of the air, a servant of the devil himself. And I think that God is too severe. So the first reason I want to say why would I be first in my own eyes instead of last is because I think I've underestimated who God is and overestimated who I am. So my second question I want to ask is how, what do I do? If I realize that I've become first in my own mind instead of last, what do I do about it? I think that there are um, a couple things. The first thing I need to do, I believe, is confess it. The first thing I need to do is tell God, I have made myself too big in my own eyes and made you too small. I don't think there's another appropriate response other than to beg for mercy in that sense. The second thing I think I should do, and, and we all should do if you're in the same boat as me, is do what we've been talking about for several weeks now on Sunday mornings, is we focus on the cross. We focus on the message of the gospel. Because the gospel has an interesting way of being able to fix this whole perspective. My sin was so great that the only thing that could pay for it is the death of God himself. How big of a deal is my adultery? Or my idols, my dishonesty, how big of a deal is it? It's so big that it required the death of God himself. That's a big, big deal. And how much does God love me? So much that he was willing to pay that price. 
The gospel is the only thing that I know that could simultaneously recognize the gravity and the weight of our sinfulness and tell us of the immense degree of God's love that he's willing to pay that penalty for us. And when we degrade our own sinfulness, we are simultaneously degrading God's love for us, that he was willing to die for something so heinous and so wretched as our rebellion against him. In Philippians 3, that's how Paul deals with his issue that he had of assuming his works were a really good deal, right? Paul thought, I've done a good job. I've been a great religious person. And then he meets Christ and he says this, but everything that was gained to me, I now consider loss because of Christ. And more than that, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I consider them filth so that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that somehow, somehow I might reach the resurrection from among the dead. Everything that Paul said was good in his life, he says, worthless, lost, dung, compared to knowing Christ and his death and his resurrection. One of the ways that we teach ourselves to reflect on the gospel is by, refl- by singing hymns together or, or Christian songs. Uh, I started to come up with a list of some of the songs that kind of capture this idea that I should understand myself as last so that I could be first. Uh, Rather than giving a list, I just want to read the lyrics of one song. This is the lyrics from the song, At the Cross. It says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done that he groaned upon that tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Thus I might hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness, and melt mine eyes to tears. If you have come in tonight and realized that you are first in your own eyes, then the sin of that is it's belittling, A, your own sinfulness, but B, God's righteousness and his great, great cost of what he's spent to save you and me. And I think the most appropriate response for us to do is reflect on how incredibly, amazingly righteous and holy he is and how wild it is that he would devote the words of the song, his sacred head, his only son, for such a worm as I. So um, as I prepare to close, let me ask you to prepare to respond. Um, The music team, if y'all want to come up, I'll pray in just a second. Uh, 
But as, as we respond, I, I just want to ask you to be honest with yourself. Have you considered yourself first in your own eyes? Considered your sins small and God's righteousness uh, small as well? If so, I'm just going to ask you to take this time of response to confess that. To tell God that you have made him too small in your eyes and ask for his um, mercy to forgive you and ask him to enlarge your understanding and view of his cross and what it means for your life. Let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this message. I pray that you will teach us not to be first in our own eyes, but to be last in our own eyes so that we might be first, that we might receive the full blessing and enjoy the full glories of your gospel, that we can receive it with complete thankfulness and happiness and wonder and amazement that you would devote your son for such a worm as us. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you'll sing with us while we, or stand with us while we sing.